Hi, I'm Melissa from the Northeastern Melbourne Integrated Cancer Service, and I'm here to introduce you to the Common Path podcast. These have been developed to support people who have been diagnosed with cancer. Listening to this podcast will provide you with an opportunity to learn from others who have already experienced cancer. They share how they made decisions, what they learned along the way, what helped and what they wish they had known. In this podcast, you'll hear from three people who are diagnosed with lymphoma. Jenny, who was diagnosed with nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2013 and was treated with chemotherapy. Simon, who was diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoma in 2015 and was also treated with chemotherapy. And Deirdre, who was diagnosed in 2013 with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and received a stem cell transplant. All were working full-time at the time of their diagnosis. You can find information and support for people with lymphoma at lymphoma.org.au and at leukemia.org.au. Each of the podcast participants has their own story to tell and will bring their unique experiences to the discussion. In this first section, Diagnosis, they start by talking about their own cancer diagnosis, how they reacted and how they coped. It's a really difficult time. You get told you've got cancer, but they have to do further testing to work out what stage you are and what type you've got. So you've got all these questions you can't get answered. So it's it's really quite emotionally difficult. Um, so it took a while to have your biopsy and all your scans, and then you get your diagnosis, and then you can have your questions answered. So I suppose that's the, the hardest thing I found was not knowing. I was, it was good. My um, haematologist gave me a book, 101 Questions and Answers about lymphoma, which was really great because it told you all about lymphomas and the types and, and a little bit about treatments and stuff. Um, I went online looking for it because my one's, because it's uncommon, there's not actually a lot of information out there about it, but everything was quite positive that it was quite treatable and, and had a very good cure rate. So it just eases your mind a bit as you read things like that. And because when the, the doctors tell you the stuff in the rooms, you're still in a bit of shock, so you don't remember it all, and having that written information to go back to to sort of reinforce that was, was really quite comforting. I knew something was going wrong with me because the lumps were just coming up on behind my ear. I had one here on just at the base of my neck and then a tiny one on my abdomen. And I was a bit scared and worried, but the moment I knew that it was non-Hodgkin's or the least of all cancers, that's what my hematologist told me, and the medical science that's out there could you know, could cure it and the treatment that I was offered made me feel very confident and I had no doubt what they were doing with me and I just trusted my specialists. Honestly, I was not shocked because one and a half month, you know, seeing the GP and uh, knowing that it was cancer and that I was in the right hands and I was going to do chemotherapy, it was a great sign of relief. So I actually had bad stomach cramps and was unable to hold down food. And I went to see the GP and we were of the impression that it was basically just gastro. So 
Uh, so that got worse and I went on antibiotics and then saw some improvement. But um, over a period of about two, three weeks after that, I was feeling pretty bad and run down. Eventually I went to the Austin and I was there for 11 hours before the word cancer was actually used. But basically they did a scan uh, of me. They, we, we were working on the basis that we wanted to find out what was wrong with me. So they did a scan and it looked to them like a very advanced form of stomach or bowel cancer. I had tumours throughout my sort of lower stomach and sort of in the chest, sort of up near the heart. So obviously that was fairly devastating. Um, it, it was a bit surreal when it actually happened. Um, I was um, having two small children. My wife was at home with them. You want to know, is it going to kill you? Are you going to see your kids grow up? You know, what's the treatment going to be like? Um, but, you know, your first question is, am I going to die? And when you're first told, you don't know. And that, that you know, as I said, was quite quite traumatic. Um, and even though, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor, it's still different being on the other side of the fence and you've got to put yourself into your doctor's hands and, and you know, give them control over your treatment and, you know, not quite your destiny, but your destiny. In this section, Making Treatment Decisions, you'll hear about how they made decisions about their treatment and what were some of the issues they needed to think about. With my stage being stage three, chemo was the only treatment option that I was given, so I just went along with that. Um, You have to choose whether you go private or public. Um, I had private cover, the hospital was closer to home and I had no extra payment, so I went private. I was also already going to that same hospital having um, immunoglobulin infusions for my pre-diagnosed immunodeficiency. So it was comfortable for me. I knew the hospital, I knew the staff already, so it was probably less scary for me to start my treatment there. I haven't had a major hospital stay in my life before that. Um, so there was a lot of new experiences very quickly, uh, which in some ways I wasn't prepared for. But at the same time, there was a lot that I didn't know. And I think that actually helped me more than knowing the ins and outs of what I could be facing. And so, I mean, any questions I had, I'd be asking the doctors or the nurses. Uh, I, I wouldn't be relying on Dr. Google. Um, my wife did quite a bit of that and quite a bit of research, which I think was both a positive and a neg- negative. I mean, there's only so much that you can find out about what you could be facing. I mean, it turned out that I um, had a pretty severe diagnosis, but at the same time as one of the most treatable. When you're going to have your treatment, there's a lot of the practical stuff that you have to think about. Like I was a solo GP, so we had to close the business. Um, You worry about how you're going to look after the kids, get them to their soccer training and parties and everything else they need to go to, Um, going shopping, just doing all the practical stuff. But the reality of that doesn't really hit, I don't think, until you start your treatment because, you know, everybody's side effects are different and everybody's experience is different. I started to just document everything from, the, from day one, including all my doctor's specialist names, all my PET scans, 
the dates and uh, all the different tests that I had got done. And this journal that I had helped not only me to go back now and see how I progressed, but even times when something went wrong in between treatment and I had to be admitted in other hospitals, that helped those doctors and professionals to get a, a ready reckon of, reckon of what went wrong with me. And in fact, they commended me for doing that. They gave us a lot of information. They, um, particularly when they realised Helen wanted a lot more information, they gave her um, resources that she could go and look at. So we were given plenty of information. We had everything explained to us and discussed sort of what was likely to happen. But with my treatment, there was a case of, particularly in the early days, we don't have we don't have time to wait. We've got to do something now. So from my point of view, it was a no-brainer. It just, you, uh, we had to go with them. Um, in the back of my mind, I, I, I sort of thought, well, okay, we'll do it for now and see what happens. But obviously things worked pretty well for me. So, uh, so the decision-making in that sense was fairly easy. Um, again, though, I found myself talking to the nurses a lot as well. It wasn't just the doctors. The, the nurses would often be able to interpret or um, clarify stuff that the doctors had said. I think my wife had the worst end of a stick having to juggle the kids and me and wondering what was going to happen um, throughout, the, throughout the time I was in hospital. I mean, uh, once we had the treatment plan worked out, uh, we were able to settle into a routine, which involved me being at home for parts of that and being in hospital for other parts. In this section about treatment, you'll hear about the treatment they each received, as well as some of the side effects they experienced and how they managed them. Not everybody experiences side effects, and they can vary from person to person, depending on the type and dose of the treatment you receive. The first time I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and it was August 2013. I had six rounds of chemotherapy from August to December and I had a maintenance drug kind of a thing in January and I was fine. I was doing PET scans constantly every two months to see how the chemotherapy was working within and it was all going fine for nine months when I developed a lower grade of lymphoma, which they call it follicular lymphoma. And that was the time they needed to do a biopsy of the lump. And then they decided that they will do my stem cell transplant. And that was a big, big time in my life. Uh, although I was, I was always maintaining that I was strong and positive, um, came a time when I felt that was it. And I did tell my ward, I was in, in the, I was hospitalized for about 24 days, isolated. And I used to tell my ward doctors, I feel crap today. But that was how the treatment worked. Uh, six chemos in January, they had, um, collected my stem cells and prior to collecting my stem cells they were 
they had given me an injection which helps to bring out the stem cells from the bone marrow and that was something intriguing which I never ever experienced. The, the treatment was, I, I think the best way to describe it was harsh. It was really hard on the body. Um, you get told about the effects that could possibly happen and you hope like hell they don't, but they do. Um, I was really fatigued. I was really nauseous right through. Um, I had pains from the treatments I had to have because my white cells went down low. Um, and you're also trying to be positive and I'm, I'm a single mum as well so I'm trying to be there for the kids and trying not to show how hard it is because you know they're teenagers and you don't want to worry them um so it was it was really really tough and you know quite hard to get through but you get through it through my treatment I um I would be writing down all my side effects and and what was going on more so when I went to the specialist that I could remember what I needed to tell him because quite often you'd forget what you were trying to, to say or you'd forget a little side effect and I knew it was important that they know about the effects to work out whether it's still safe to continue with your treatment or not. Basically they started off giving me a course of um, RCHOP which is the standard cancer treatment as I understand it. Um, that was while they were determining what they were actually going to use, which turned out to be a Codex-M and an IVAC alternating treatment. So one course of one and then one course of the next one, and then they repeated that. So there was a total of about, I think, five five or six treatments that, were, that I had over a period of about three months. You can't do it on your own. You, you have to have a support group. Um, you know, you've got your, your consultant who helps get you through the treatment and the side effects and is, is monitoring you for, you know, psychological effects. You've got the oncology nurses and the teams down in, um, in the day oncology unit and they're also monitoring you and talking and we'd, we'd have a laugh down there with every treatment. Um, and, and there's support people in the hospital like the social worker came round and the psychologist came round, you know, just checking if you needed anything. You've got your family and friends that, you know, they can help out in so many ways, you know, just cooking meals for the kids so if you're tired you didn't have to and you had something in the freezer. I was supported uh, at, uh, with a dietitian to help me to get, weight, to get back my weight. And, um, yes, and I'm slowly trying to do it. It was hard because of the taste buds being damaged, but... Slowly, I started to motivate myself, and and he cooked food for me that was more palatable, and and I could, yeah, gain a lot of strength. Yes, I sometimes had to give myself a stern talking to. Um, you, you, you just got to find a way, and you know, some days it was music, some days it was just having a sleep, some days it was going out and going for a walk. Um, getting out in the sunshine, you know, sometimes, it, you know, not really going shopping because you didn't really feel like going shopping, but, you know, just getting out and about um, or ringing someone, phoning someone, but just trying to be as positive as possible at a time when it's really quite difficult. And some days I failed and some days I didn't. The very first time of cancer treatment in 2013, I had my own sick leave, seven months of sick leave, so I was well protected. The finances were flowing in. And I had the support of my manager, 
an awesome, amazing woman. And uh, <clears throat> went back to work and nine months again, had to do the stem cell transplant. At that moment, I had exhausted all my leave, but I had my social worker from the hospital who advised me how and where I could get support. And one support was from Centrelink and from my superannuation. It's funny. I mean, there were some, there were some good friends of mine um, who naturally were just there. And that's, that's sort of what mattered. Uh, there, was, there was one friend of mine who had actually had lymphoma a couple of years ago and had recovered pretty well. And um, I've known him since high school. We were, um, and we've been pretty good friends ever since. I, I think it'd be fair to say that his support, um, I mean, it, it sort of added a sort of depth to our friendship, which, to be honest, we didn't really need. We were sort of still quite close. But having someone who'd had a similar experience. Um, and he, he was a good person to be able to bounce off. He had a wife and um, three kids. Uh, when he went in for treatment, his youngest was, uh, I think, two at the time. In this final section, what helped? You'll hear about some of the things that helped them through their diagnosis and treatment. I feel confident that what I've done, but there's one thing I learned during the treatment is I should have done some mindful meditation because I'm a person that always wants to be in control of everything. Never take the time to sit back and just meditate, relax. And of course, physical activity has been my downfall. So I'm I'm trying now to get that back into my life and see how best I could have a more healthier life. Yes, it was my faith. Um, reading scriptures, holy scriptures. Uh, my family, especially my husband, my soulmate, who, who is retired and who, is, who was with me day in and day out. He's been a very strong inspiration to me, my family, my, my uh, colleagues, and most of all is um, <clears throat> having that confidence that whatever happens, just take it one day at a time, focus one day at a time. I think you've got to be patient and I think you've got to be flexible and learn to go with the flow because things won't always go the way you want them to. Well, expect the unexpected, you know, things will happen that you're just going to have to adapt to. I think you have to make sure you do tell your team what's going on, what your side effects are so that they can monitor you properly and, and give you the right treatments and, you know, get help if you need it. The support, it's been critical. It's, it, you, could, you, you can't do this without support. It, it just, I mean, you can... You can shut down from people when you find out about this, uh, find out about everything. I mean, uh, I, most of um, the big revelations for me were on my own. Uh, Helen would have been at home with the kids or um, I was spending a lot of time in the hospital room on my own. And I'm okay with that. I'm, by nature, I can be fairly solitary. But 
something like this, you can't do it without support. It just, it, it can't work. It, it, changes, it changes your life in a lot of ways and a lot of ways that you may not expect. And you need to be able to talk to someone. You need people who can actually help you. I mean, it's not just the physical it's people who can sort of understand that you that you've been through something major. Um, whether it's other patients who've um, had treatment, uh, whether it's just friends and family. Cancer Council has helped me, assisted us to find a financial advisor to take care of my mortgages, the bills, and other things. Uh, I was able to access their wig service and uh, Leukemia Foundation. Um, they had paid one of our utility bills, uh, gave us fuel and food vouchers, gave me transport service when I didn't have anyone to take me to, for my appointments. And through the survivorship at the hospital, I was invited to participate in the Look Good, Feel Better workshops, and I was their model. Didn't realize that they were going to make me up. <laughs> I'm not a person who was, who was in for all these things. I've been always very simple, but they chose me, and I was baffled the first time. But when they did me up and showed me even how to do an eyebrow line, or how to wear a scarf, that was amazing. It was so uplifting, and I really had tears of joy, actually. Uh, they even gave me a makeup kit. We hope that the information in this podcast has been valuable. There are some general strategies that we recommend you follow when diagnosed with cancer, many of which have already been spoken about. However, they include... Learn all you can about your diagnosis and the available treatment options. Take someone with you to all of your cancer-related appointments. They can help you remember what was said, and it's a good idea to ask them to take notes during the meeting to help with this. Prepare your questions before your appointments, and don't be afraid to ask them. Keep a copy of your medical information. Seek and accept help when needed. And finally, talk to members of your healthcare team about appropriate exercise. For further information, don't forget you can contact the Cancer Council Information and Support Service on 13 11 20, where you can speak directly with a cancer nurse. Or you can visit their website at www.cancervic.org.au. And to find out what you can expect as you move from diagnosis to treatment, check out the What to Expect guides at www.cancerpathways.org.au. As a final piece of advice, please remember to discuss any concerns or questions you have with your treating team. They will know your personal circumstances and will be able to provide you with the most appropriate information and advice. You can also watch this podcast as a video. Just go to YouTube and once there, search for A Common Path, Cancer Support and Advice. You can then follow the link to the video you want. 
Our thanks go to Jenny, Simon and Deirdre, who have generously shared their experiences to make this podcast possible. The Northeastern Melbourne Integrated Cancer Service would also like to acknowledge the support of the Victorian Government who made the production of this podcast possible.